special edition of the Not Boring Podcast. I'm here with my friend, Dror Poleg. Dror is an expert on all things real estate, technology, physical world, digital world, and the intersection of all of those things. And one of the longest standing WeWork bulls that I know, and we're here to talk today about WeWork. So Dror, can you introduce yourself and give a little bit of background? Hi, Becky. Pleasure to be on your podcast and happy birthday, first of all. Thank you. So I'm the author of Rethinking Real Estate, which is a book about technology's impact on the way we work and live and move things around and shop and uh, by extension, the impact on the assets where we do these things and on the people who finance them and operate them. Uh, I'm also co-chair of the Urban Land Institute's Technology and Innovation Council in New York. And I think a lot about that intersection of tech and, and cities and buildings and what it means for people and what it means for investors. Amazing. And so we are here today to talk about WeWork. The two of us first met when I was working at Breather, when you worked with us for a while. It was a blast to get to work together and think about the impact of technology on real estate together. And so now I'm excited to do that again. We're here to talk about WeWork today. People are familiar. WeWork was all over the news. WeWork was the GameStop of fall of 2019. But for those who aren't familiar, can you just walk us through the WeWork story as a refresher from founding up through maybe the attempted IPO in the fall of 2019? Sure. So WeWork was founded in New York in 2010 by Adam Newman and Miguel McKelvey. Miguel, an American. Adam, an Israeli, very typical Israeli started offering flexible workspaces with a twist to try to make it cool, more consumery, raised money gradually. In 2016, even before it raised a lot of money, it launched, it tried to launch uh, We Live, which is like a, a housing uh, angle or take on the same type of, of audience. In 2017, it announced We Grow, which is a middle school or elementary school, again, in the spirit of WeWork, of changing the world. But probably the biggest event since its founding was in August 2017, when it raised $4.4 billion from SoftBank at a valuation of $20 billion. And that's really when the WeWork story starts to explode and, and start to change. So raising all that money obviously made it a big company, but it was also, more importantly, the first time that people in the real estate industry, the traditional landlords, understood, mm, okay, maybe we have a problem. Maybe something real is happening here. It's not just a little gimmick, it's not just a little startup, but it's something with a lot of money that can come and, and shake things around. From there, WeWork proceeded in 2018 to burn through about $2 billion in losses, expanding very aggressively. The combination of Masayoshi Son and Adam Newman was something that the world <laughs> was not ready for and exploded. In 2018, it also started experimenting with acquiring its own building. So until then, it was just leasing, which we'll probably get to uh, later on, and it started trying to set up vehicles to partner with private equity investors in order to buy some buildings for itself. In Towards the, the end of 2018, SoftBank committed to even more money, I think about $3 billion in warrants and some other structures, bringing us to the big bang of January 2019, when 
SoftBank put not so much money into the company again, I think about a billion dollars, which is peanuts by that point, but valuing the company unilaterally at $47 billion, which was basically, I think, the, the, the third or second largest unicorn in the world. It really made like, wow, like WeWork is like one of the biggest companies on earth now. And the plan was to take the company public. You and I were both in that space <laughs> at that time. We knew that things were very hot and there was a lot of money, but I think both of us were already talking about the fact that it might not last for very long and might not even see the end of the year. As the company was planning for its IPO, stories started to emerge about all sorts of weird things that are happening there. I think most notably in July 2019, Elliot Brown at the Wall Street Journal reported that Adam Newman sold $700 million worth of shares before the IPO which in itself as a percentage of his holding was, it's act, it actually wasn't so significant, but as an absolute amount, it's kind of, whoa, this guy maybe doesn't believe in the company, what's going on? And then leading up to the company releasing its S1 in August, 2019, which then opened a whole new can of worms, which <laughs> you're probably going to ask me about next. Yeah, absolutely. Let's just take a pause there. I think that was an incredible overview of WeWork's history, but at the time, so we have our kind of personal experience here being at Breather. And I think the two of us had spoken a bunch because I, I was running our real estate team at the time and we'd see WeWork over and over again at the same spaces that we were looking to bid on and, and to lease. And when we saw the bids and heard the bids from the landlords that they were putting in and we ran them through our models, we could not figure out how they were planning on making any money. So obviously in technology, there's this idea of growing and then at some point becoming profitable. But I think both of us were a little bit skeptical about that at the time. I would also say we sat in a breather space at one point before the IPO, before they announced an IPO. And you said to me, I was like, I can't imagine that they're going to get anywhere near this valuation, blah, blah, blah. You were more rational and calm headed and said, I think they'll get there. But at some point, either pre-IPO or post-IPO, they're going to have to replace the CEO. Adam Newman is a little bit too volatile to be in this spot. Turns out you were right, but it happened a lot faster. So I think that's a good segue into what happened after that fantastic, magical S1. Even if you have it, the S1 story of how they made it, I think they had to fly people from islands and spent millions of dollars to take pictures. Take us through the whole IPO process. Yeah, so my plan for WeWork was that they will get away with an IPO, but then they'll have to replace the CEO very quickly and completely change the way they finance the business and their pace of expansion. Somehow the, the CEO managed to, to get everything to explode even before uh, they got to the IPO. Uh, so in terms of fundamentals, uh, the IPO showed the world that WeWork was losing about $900 million uh, in the first half of 2019 that it had about close to $50 billion in lease obligations, which just meant rent that it promised people to pay. But for investors and as a one-liner on CNBC, it doesn't sound very good. It just sounds like a huge kind of obligation. It showed all sorts of family members of Adam Newman, starting from his wife, then to his sister, then to all sorts of other people participating actively in managing the company. It showed that the founders, Adam and his wife, had all sorts of superpowers in terms of other shareholders having or not having a say on the business. And then it shows all sorts of other weird things, such as the founder selling the copyrights to the Wii brand to the company that he himself founded for $5.9 million, which wasn't even peanuts in the context of the money that was involved, but it just shows a lack of judgment and lack of focus that is disturbing. But more than anything, it just showed that the business itself is expanding really quickly. It shows 
glimpses of profitability and of an interesting business, but because it was growing so quickly, it was really hard to evaluate what a mature version of this business would look like. So I think at that point, they had about 530 locations, more than 100 cities, about 30 countries. So really hard to make sense of. And they defined in the, in the S1 that it takes 24 months for a location to mature, which means that by then it becomes profitable. But I think about 70% of the locations of the open ones were not mature yet. And there were tons of other ones that were not even open. So the kind of thing that you could look at was very minimal. And I remember in the S1, they had a graph kind of talking about their unit economics over time that didn't have a y-axis. And so you couldn't really tell what things actually looked like. And there was a lot of smoke and mirrors in there. The other favorite WeWork chart of mine is that I think there was, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, did every year WeWork said it was going to be profitable the following year. And then it tracked what it projected it was going to do with what it actually did. And every year, and they're saying it again this year, but every year, this year or next year is going to be the profitable one. And thus far, they've fallen short. Okay, so those are the numbers. They try to go to market. What happens? Yeah, so already before the IPO, these stories started to come out, again, led by Elliot Brown, about Adam Newman's insider dealings, about his... Uh, selling shares about the company leasing spaces from buildings that he owned, which here too, for anyone in the real estate world, this looks completely normal, but to public markets, especially tech-focused public markets, it sounds like some medieval stuff that you don't see anywhere else. And then in the lead up to the IPO in August and September, it started to become really clear that things are not going to work. The valuation was slashed uh, preemptively from 47 to I think around $20 billion to see if investors would tolerate that. And at some point, I think around middle of September, they just decided not to go ahead with it at all and announced, maybe even on the same day, that Adam Newman uh, will not be continuing as CEO, but that in return, he was going to receive some kind of very generous package of uh, SoftBank buying his shares, plus getting all sorts of other things, plus a consulting fee, something that adds up to close to a billion dollars, which again, had a lot of nuance, but at the end of the day, it sounded to the media like, oh, he's just getting a gift of a billion dollars for messing up the company. And that was the end of Adam Newman, more or less. We thought we'll see him again, and we probably will, but he left at that point. Several months later, we're already, I think, February 2020, which is starting to come to modern history. <laughs> Let me pause you for a second, because during all of this, I think in September 2019, you put on Twitter, a poll asking people if they what the chances were that WeWork would be worth more than Airbnb and Uber combined. I think 70% of your respondents said there's a 0% chance of that happening. And so far, they've been proven right. In October, you wrote an article called Long WeWork, Short Airbnb? Question mark. And so you've had this kind of concept out there for a while that maybe WeWork will be more valuable at some point than you dropped Uber. I think that's very fair than Airbnb alone. And since then, you've, you've stuck to that. And you said that you still think that WeWork has the potential to be worth more than Airbnb. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in a second, but I just want to pause and put that in context that even during this, you've seen the potential in the business. All right. So February, 2020. Yeah, so February, 2020, WeWork announces the appointment of a new CEO. Uh, Sandeep Matrani came from Brookfield, which is a very large uh, asset manager, one of the largest real estate owners in the world. At Brookfield, he oversaw the turnaround of GGP, which is a, a large uh, shopping mall owner and operator. So he's seen real estate carnage in his life and he's seen turnarounds in his life. 
Uh, prior to that, he was a Vernado, which is one of the largest uh, office owners in the world. So he seemed like a responsible adult, but also someone who's proven to be like quite creative and open-minded, not like your typical kind of uh, boring real estate person, but someone who's, who's up for an adventure. Even before they brought him on board, right after the IPO, uh, Mar Marcelo Clore, who is like uh, one of the chairman of, of SoftBank, became the facto CEO. They had an office of a CEO and, and some other people involved, but basically he was running the show and they just started cutting really hard, fired thousands of people, tried to get out of as many leases as they could, got rid of all sorts of companies that they acquired, such as Meetup and Managed by Q, shut down some acquisitions such as Spacious and really tried to cut costs very aggressively. And as Mr. Matrani became CEO in February, the world was just about to hit. COVID-19, it was already 2020, but it was still called 19 then. And uh, he started to even more aggressively cut things in the core business of the company. So I think SoftBank before that just got rid of things that were not essential, including that school, by the way. But Sandeep really tried to look at the leases themselves and either renegotiate, uh, I think more than a hundred leases or completely uh, renege or get out of them which again sounds extreme in real estate and in the world of retail and hospitality it's very common for large brands to to close dozens of locations at a time and renegotiate uh i think which this is, part is worth pausing on too for a second just because that was one of the things that that we had spoken about before that each one of their units was under a separate entity and so that theoretically gave them in, in bad times the ability to shut down underperforming locations we had thought they, were, they had their hands tied because they had tech investors, they were more consumer facing. And so it looks bad to shut down a particular location. There might be contagion among the landlord community, all of that. And then the world fell apart first for WeWork itself during the IPO and then for COVID. And so it actually gave them a really nice opportunity to take advantage of this structure that they had set up that might've optically looked really bad to take advantage of prior to any of this happening. Yeah, one of the things I mentioned in my famous uh, long WeWork article in uh, September, October 2019 was at first, it's par for the course for large tenants to cancel leases, even without that structure that you mentioned. So I gave an example of Starbucks launching Tivana, then deciding that it doesn't want to launch it anymore, shutting down, I think, 80 or 100 stores in one go, and then being sued by Simon Property Group, which is the largest retail landlord in the world, the most powerful company you can imagine in this space. And the landlord still ended up settling because you basically have no choice. You want to do something with that space. You want to move on with your life. So you take whatever you can get and you move on. At the end of the day, you can't force someone to keep paying your rent for 15 years if they don't want to. And the other point that I made long, long pre-COVID in that article was that ultimately, if WeWork is in trouble, it probably means that landlords themselves are even more trouble. So if there's a slowdown, landlords themselves will be on their knees. They will not be in a position to pick and choose and they will do whatever they can to try to keep the tenants that they do have and that are solvent and that can make use of whatever build out they already have in place. And indeed that has proven to be true. So WeWork didn't just survive the crisis so far, but really managed to, to improve its position. And maybe most importantly, and another thing that I assumed would happen was the SoftBank double down on WeWork. So even in 2020, it poured more money into the company, basically signaling to all of these landlords, listen, if you think you can bully this company, you can't because we have deep pockets and we're gonna keep bankrolling them and they're gonna push you around. And you now are in trouble, you have to pay your mortgages, your tenants are running away. You better play nice with these people. They, they can actually pay you rent one day, so you might as well accommodate them. 
So I think this is an interesting transition point, right? Where they went from majority leases and they're now trying to restructure a lot of those. But let's take a step back for a second. And can you walk us through what the WeWork business model looks like and how it's evolving now? Yeah. So as the company started, they were basically leasing, master leasing spaces, and then reselling them, slicing and dicing them into smaller pieces and selling them to smaller uh, and initially much, much smaller companies. So to freelancers, to small startups, that was the original WeWork. But over time, they started to transition towards uh, more enterprise clients or so companies with hundreds, with thousands, with tens of, tens of thousands of employees. By the time of their planned IPO in September 2019, I think already about 40% of all of their members of about half a million members were from enterprise clients or from companies such as Microsoft and, and Amazon and some banks and consulting firms. And the plan was to transition to do more with these type of clients. And on the other side, on the supply side, they started to experiment with, again, buying their own buildings or sponsoring deals or bringing people with money to buy buildings for WeWork, but buildings that WeWork has chosen and that WeWork believes that it identifies as, as something that it can run profitably. So that was another concern originally with its model. Personally, I never thought that the model itself was the problem. There's hotel companies and, and of course retailers that sign leases and make money. So that arbitrage is dangerous, but it's, it's, it's as dangerous as any other business on earth. At the end of the day, if you know how to bring customers, you know how to make money, good for you. If you don't, it's a problem. But of course, signing 300 leases in one year without even looking at them, uh, and we were parties to some of those deals, is bad business. So it's not about the business itself. It's just if you run it badly, then it's a bad business. And there are a couple of things, a couple of things there, right? So one, what we talked about on the lease side, they were paying prices for space that didn't make sense. On the supply side, a couple of really interesting things happened. One, they promised to do build-outs, custom build-outs for corporate clients, pretty much irregardless of the price. If a, a client wanted a custom build-out, WeWork would do it for them. And so they did that to acquire customers. The big question there is, can you keep them for long enough that it makes it worth it? The other thing I thought was interesting, I heard this from multiple people, is that if they were in one WeWork location, the three WeWork locations near them would try to poach them with 50% off deals and 60% off deals and undercut each other because they each had their own individual targets to hit. And then lastly, I remember this was when we, I think, started getting a little bit depressed, was when they started paying brokers 100% of one year's rent as a commission to steal tenants from a Notel, a Breather, one of the other competitors to bring them into WeWork. So in this model that can make sense, there were all sorts of practices that just added some extra funk onto the, onto the business model. They were stuck in what I call uh, Newman's Vortex. So you have a cash flow negative business, you raise venture capital, in this case from SoftBank, which pushes you to do crazier and crazier things, which means that you're in a negative cash flow business even more deeply, which pushes you to raise even more money, et cetera, et cetera. And basically Masayoshi Son and Adam Newman kind of <laughs> egging each other along and both wanting to see, okay, how far this will go. And I think both of them didn't have too much to lose in a way because Adam Newman, any founder, if someone would come to me and say, hey, take 12, $14 billion and go burn it and see what happens, I'll be like, okay, yeah, let's burn it and see what happens. Well, I talked to an investor who has co-invested in a few companies with SoftBank, and he said, really the big differentiator between whether a company is going to do well or not is how much the CEO actually is enamored of and listens to Masa. If they're able to take the money and be like, all right, thanks for your money, 
you're out of here. They actually end up doing pretty well because it's great to have that kind of money. And it just says something about the CEO. If they do what Adam Newman did and get in this egging on contest with Masa, it's going to end badly. Yeah, but the other side of it, though, is even more interesting. I think from even from SoftBank's perspective, at some point, they were determining their own valuations. They were investing in rounds with themselves. And it got to the point where it was, okay, if the IPO is going to work, great. If not, we have more money. We're just going to take over a bigger chunk of the company and try again, because we still believe in the thesis behind this company, which is exactly what ended up happening. SoftBank put more money at 5 to $8 billion valuation. Last time, I think on its books, it was like less than $3 billion. I think they cut the value because everything was going down. So they said, okay, why not just write off more? And then if it goes up, we make money. So a lot of it was just financial engineering. And even the $47 billion valuation should be seen in the context of SoftBank trying to raise its second, even larger vision funds. They needed to show a large profit on their books. Okay, WeWork suddenly went up in value. Who cares? Everyone got whatever they wanted out of that valuation. Uh, And Massa went on and got some more money, didn't get everything he wanted, but got something. And they all moved on with their lives pretty happily. And so that, that leads us to today, financially engineered pared down cap table with SoftBank in much more control, a new CEO at the helm and COVID, which has totally reshaped the business already on the supply side, obviously short-term on the demand side, and then potentially long-term on the demand side. What does the business model look like today after all of this carnage and reshuffling? It's not fundamentally so different from what it was a year and a half ago, but it's much more focused. So again, there's a lot of stuff around it that was just spun off or shut down. It's much more lean because of the trauma that it suffered. So again, a lot of headcount was completely eliminated. A lot of locations were eliminated. The China business was almost like in the process of being spun off. But today we work, I call it like going back from we to we work, not like a company that is trying to, as Adam Newman said, uh, whatever, redefine the world's consciousness or something to we work, which is just like a company that provides really cool office space on flexible terms and makes it really easy for you to book it, which is what the world needs. And maybe more importantly is what happened outside of we work, where if a year and a half ago, people were still doubting whether flexibility will be such a big thing and whether the office has to be like such a branded and experiential thing. Today, it's very clear to everyone that the office must be a consumerized thing. Otherwise, no one's coming back. And even if it will be consumerized and attractive and fun and whatever, it's still not very clear if everyone's coming back. It's also clear that WeWork is still here, which is maybe one of its biggest virtues, just that it survived. Because the moment for WeWork is coming, I think next year is the year of WeWork in terms of demand, like the thesis is coming to life. Whatever Massa and Adam Newman assumed about the world is becoming a reality. They just need to stay solvent long enough and to bring as little baggage as possible with them uh, as we enter that reality. The dream for all of us flexible space operators was moving from a lease structure to a management fee, revenue share, something where it's more of a partnership with the landlord where you're not locked into an obligation. Have they been able to transition the portfolio from leases to management agreements in any meaningful way over the the pandemic? There's not a lot of data. They have done more of that and they've been focusing on that. They have renegotiated a lot of their existing leases. So whether they became a little more shared in terms of the risk with the landlord or just that the rent itself became so much lower that it just, again, there's nothing wrong with signing a lease if it's a good deal. And, and now 
it's a better deal than it was. I still, I, I can't say that it's a good deal yet because the office market as a whole is still so volatile. And I think that's the biggest risk for we were going forward in a way that's the good news that it's not about them anymore. It's just that if people are coming back to the office at all, WeWork is in a good position to, to be a leader in this industry. If they're not, or if it's going to take a few more years with whatever new strains come up, then uh, it's not going to go too well. So after a decade, and a wild decade in business, today, what do you see as WeWork's competitive advantage? So first, WeWork is the, the verb or the noun for flexible office. You get a WeWork. Even my, my wife's grandma knows what that means by now, and not just because she reads my newsletter. So they have a consumer brand. Second, they have the operational chops. This business looks really simple. Uh, you and I know how difficult it is, and whatever we were trying to do at Breather was much, much simpler than whatever WeWork is trying to do, both in terms of scale and in terms of the, the, the depth of, of the offering. They have a global footprint. They are a natively integrated company, which again comes with risks. But as you have written about, when a new market emerges, when a new opportunity is being defined, it's not bad to be that company that can really control all aspects uh, of the experience. They are big enough to bully landlords a little bit when necessary for various reasons, both because of the, the legal structure that you mentioned and because of the financial backing that they have. And I think ultimately, to me, the most bullish thing about WeWork is that we live in a world where any semblance of cash flow is valued at very high multiples. Even after the crash, if it will come, we're likely to live in such a world because interest rates are likely going to be very low in real terms forever. The office market is going through the biggest change since office buildings were invented. It's becoming a consumer product, something the individuals choose to go to or they don't go to at all. And there's currently a huge gap between what consumers want and what most office owners and operators are offering. And it's very likely that in 10 years, there will be an office brand that is worth more than 100 or 150 or $200 billion. And WeWork has a lot of baggage, but it is still the single company that has the best chance of becoming that leader in this market which again, comes with a lot of warts and baggage, but there's no one else around. So yeah. do you think with 2020 in the books that within, call it two years, WeWork will be more valuable than Airbnb? I think it might. The, the, I, one change I've made after that post was that I became optimistic about Airbnb as well. And I didn't want it to be like one against the other. My point in writing it was to say, okay, everyone thinks that WeWork is dead and that Airbnb is like this beautiful asset light tech company. Actually, I think Airbnb is going to suffer a lot when there's a crisis, which they did. Uh, but they also followed what I recommended them to do in the book, which is move towards uh, long-term uh, bookings and more into the housing market. And they did it really nicely so far. I'm happy for them. I don't want it to be anti-Airbnb. But I think that WeWork can be equally large. That's a company that just before the IPO was doing almost $4 billion a year in revenue. For comparison, Spotify, sorry, Shopify the same year did $1.6 billion in revenue. Of course, different margins, but just it's a big company. And if it becomes even a little profitable, that cash flow is going to be worth uh, a lot of money in the right market. So I, I think they have a chance to be a huge company. And with some luck, probably with some bad luck for Airbnb, they can be even bigger than Airbnb. But if they're just big on their own, I'll be happy as well. Absolutely. And you might have a chance to put your money where your mouth is on this bet. Just yesterday, 
Elliot Brown again broke the story that WeWork might be going public via a SPAC at about $10 billion. What do you know about the deal? I don't know so much. Apparently, they're, being, they're having multiple suitors, the leading among which is uh, Bow Capital Management, which is run by Vivek Ranadive, who is like a, the owner of the Sacramento Kings and uh, a software billionaire. And if you uh, haven't watched the video of him on draft night, it's fantastic. I think he might match Adam and Masa in terms of craziness. He looks like a, a visionary and an open-minded person. His firm also has Shaquille O'Neal as an advisor, which I think would be a great addition to this story. I know that Elliot is working on the WeWork book, but now we probably need another one already. <laughs> they have the book, the podcast, the movie, I think at some point. It's quite a story. Are you buying it $10 billion? Before the IPO, another one of my calls, I said that I'm not buying it $47 billion, but that the company would do well to slash the valuation by more than half. It ended up not being enough, but maybe if they would have started there, they wouldn't have created the dynamic that they did. But I think at 10 billion, knowing what I know now, which is very little about their financial, it's an interesting bet. Like in a world where Airbnb is worth $120 billion and even Uber is close to 100 now. And of course, GameStop is uh, also signing leases and worth even more than these companies. I can see WeWork being worth $10 billion, but the, the best thing about the SPAC is that if it happens, we'll actually have WeWork financials to look at, which would be fun to revisit. Absolutely. And what are the things that, you know, assuming that we get the financials and an investor presentation and the beautiful thing about a SPAC is we'll get some forward-looking numbers in there out of WeWork, which is, are always fun. But what are the metrics that you're going to be looking at and the people should be looking at in that investor presentation? I'm going to look at total lease obligations again, that scary number from last time to see if that's been lowered uh, to a certain degree. I'm going to see if they have any proven partnerships that they set up over the last 18 months. I'm going to see the percentage of enterprise clients and how much that has grown. It's definitely more than 50% now, partly because a lot of the small clients ran away during COVID. That's not a bad reason in itself. One interesting thing that I wanted to see in the original S1 that we didn't have is once a location is mature and open for a few years, how much does it cost to actually refurbish it and how often do you need to do that? So it's really nice that you open it and it makes money after two years, but if after three years you have to spend a lot of money to keep it fresh and cool, what does that mean? That was something that just, there wasn't enough time in terms of history to look at. I want to see changes in the capital stack. So one of the biggest problems, the biggest problem for WeWork was that they were basically using venture capital for anything and everything. I think for a company like that to work, if you look at Starbucks or at Marriott or other companies with kind of comparable business models, they need to use multiple capital sources to do different things. So you can use venture capital to build technology, to prove different concepts. Then you have to rely on traditional real estate capital to finance buying buildings or even to finance master leases. You can rely on traditional bank financing for a lot of the stuff that you put into these buildings if you don't expand too quickly. A lot of the furniture and build out, just like any other company on earth, you go to the bank, you get money for that. It doesn't have to come from people who are expecting a 20% IRR. So a lot of around the capital stack, obviously improvements in, in corporate governance, which are definitely in place, but I hope there's no other surprises or weird things that we're gonna discover. And maybe early signs of an initiatives of life from an initiative that they started this year, which is called WeWork Now, which is offering their customers on-demand access to all WeWork spaces across the world. So enabling a company to give its employees that ability to open uh, hundreds or thousands of doors across the world, which is something that you and I were, were delivering already two years ago. 
but I think that's something that it, its moment is is arriving as well. So it'll be interesting to see how how much it resonates with customers because it is one of those things that WeWork is the only company that's in a great position to offer uh, a standard uniform experience wherever you are on earth. I guess this is true across most industries, but timing and the right capital structure are so incredibly important in the flexible office space. So if we work 10Xs in the next few years, why did it happen? So first, because money remained cheap. Interest rates remained low. The party continued or it ended and then a new party began, which was even bigger than the, the previous one. Second, because institutional investors, the ones that are backing the landlords and developers are increasingly moving up the risk curve and they're looking for operating partners to take assets and to squeeze cash flow out of them and actually to de-risk them. One of the biggest misconceptions about WeWork was that it's adding risk to the office market. So people didn't understand that office is becoming riskier in itself and WeWork is one of the ways of de-risking that. It's a crazy way and it was a crazy way, but it can be a reasonable way in the same way that when you own a hotel and you have people committing to one night at a time, having someone like Marriott is a way to de-risk that business, not to add risk to that business. Another reason is to see if they can actually use other people's money to do all the things that I described. So the capital stack from institutional investors, from banks, from anyone else, from the landlords themselves in terms of pushing them around. Uh, I think these would be the main reasons. And of course, the fact that people came back to some semblance of an office building that's important for that. <laughs> that's something that has to happen for WeWork to succeed. And I think that answers my next question, but what's the biggest challenge to that vision? If WeWork is bankrupt or worth a couple billion dollars in the next five years, what happened? So the biggest challenge is that people just didn't come back to the office, I think, which unfortunately is it's a real possibility, both because the lockdowns are still continuing and also after the lockdowns, we have to see how much pain will be in the office world. But I think as long as there's some kind of office market, even if it's like 60 or 70% capacity, I think WeWork is in a good position to, to thrive in that market. It will probably need more money, which is why they're floating all these stories about SPACs. And I think that even without a SPAC, SoftBank will give them the money. One thing that we didn't touch on, SoftBank today is worth double or more what it was when WeWork was trying to IPO before it went down even further. So to me, Part of my bet on WeWork was also a bet on SoftBank. I thought that they were seeing things that other people don't understand. It was very easy to make fun of. And more importantly, I thought that SoftBank is not some crazy Japanese guy that, that, that invests on a whim, but that they're a symptom of a much bigger shift and the fact that there's just tons of capital that has to be allocated and it has to go somewhere. And if you come up with a nice story and take it, the money will be there for you. And he's been proven right about bunch this year. The arm sale to NVIDIA was a big one. Doing buybacks, I think like activist investors got involved and he actually played ball. He's less crazy maybe than he than he looks on the surface. And I think I'm right there with you being bullish on Masa. And I think this is maybe kind of something in our relationship or about you generally is that probably throughout this WeWork thing, I was quick to be like, oh, absolutely the future. They're going to build everything. And then quick to say they're totally dead. This WeWork story is over. This whole time you've remained rational on the company and here's the challenges, here's the opportunity. What's the next company that, that you think people misunderstand like they misunderstood WeWork and maybe still do misunderstand WeWork? What's the next one of those stories that you see floating out there? So there's not a lot of companies that popped up this year that are completely new and big enough already to talk about, but we have Open Door, which you wrote extensively about, which I think is, is a fascinating 
opportunity. The whole world of iBuyers could be 50 or 100 times larger than it is today. Again, very risky business. In reality, even riskier when you just look at it from the outside, it looks completely insane. But when you try to buy a house in America and you understand how painful that is and how illiquid the market is, there just has to be a different way of doing it. And, and they're offering it. And again, a market that is even bigger than the office market. I still really like what's happening in the world of co-living. Again, the good companies that are operating well, Common is an example. So a business that is very easy to get wrong, but if you do it well, you can grow very uh, fast and become a giant company. More importantly, I'm bullish on, on things that, uh, that enable remote presence. And so if I'm bullish on something, it's not an individual company yet, but it's the notion that the world is moving into the virtual realm. I saw Andrew Chen with a cheesy quote yesterday that people are talking about Miami is the new Silicon Valley or Austin is the new Silicon Valley. Actually, Clubhouse, which is an audio app, is the new Silicon Valley. That's where you go. And I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think Twitter has always been the Silicon Valley. It's where I met a lot of my friends and collaborators and, and clients. And I think more and more people are just going to understand that all of these things that you think can happen only offline can happen even better online. And you just have to learn how to use Twitter. I am I am getting increasingly bullish on Twitter. And that's another one that you've been right on, I think, for a while. My big lesson and, and what I think people can get from following you is one, just a deep kind of understanding of the history and economics behind so many things and a, a more macro view of everything that's happening right now. And I think that leads to the rationality that you showed with WeWork that you've shown on Twitter and a few other areas too is, and you said it with Open Door, you've said it with WeWork, the consumer ends up making the decision. And so if you can make something that is a better process, no matter how crazy the headlines or the capital structure or whatever's going on underneath, delivering a great consumer experience at scale is really hard to do. And so find those companies. And so just a few things that I like out of our you know, relationship and out of reading and listening to you, where can people find you? I'm on drawerpoleg.com. That's D-R-O-R-P-O-L-E-G.com or at drawerpoleg on Twitter. And from the bottom of my heart, I've been, it's been incredible to see you building the podcast and the newsletter and the not boring brand over the last year. And I've seen you kind of planning to write and how much work you put into it. And it's really amazing the, the kind of stuff that you produce. And it's fun to, to record something together. This was a blast. Guess who's back, 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 back